Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Please remain standing, grab your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. That's, if you go to the book of Revelation, you turn left a bunch of books and there it is, it's right there. You'll, you'll get there. Anyway, it's Palm Sunday and what a great day we celebrate uh, looking back all those years, if you had been there on that particular Sunday, as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem and the people were out there with their palm branches and throwing their coats before him as he made his way in that cult, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You would never have known that what, what happened on that day would reflect on what would happen just five days later on Friday and Jesus offers up his life as a sacrifice. So we do want to encourage you to be with us this Wednesday or this Friday in our service. We call it Service of Darkness. We use some light to kind of illustrate uh, what we're doing there in the message. So we encourage you to be here with us. But we're here at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting a new book here today. Beginning at verse 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm to you the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may be seated. Last week in our study, we finished our study in Jude after seven weeks of study there. But we saw in that study how Jude had really sounded the alarm. He had issued a warning concerning certain men who were apostates, who had kind of invaded the church. And from within the church, they were throwing out all kinds of heresies and deceptions, teaching the people that the grace of God that saves us from sin now offers us freedom to sin freely without any, anything that should convict you. And so the, in essence, we saw they were seeking to normalize sexual sin even within the church. Now, when Jude wrote his letter... He wrote not just to give them an awareness of the threat that was around him, but to exhort them and encourage them as true believers to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And we saw through that short little book how he even offered really the tools by which we as believers can actively stand for the faith. But when we come here to 1 Corinthians, again, Paul, 
He's going to address another issues, not just an issue, but many issues that were confronting the church, threatening the church, the purity of the gospel, the dangers of spiritual pride, of carnal thinking, while living under the influences of a very carnal and unbelieving pagan world. The issue that we'll see a lot in this book is a lot of compromise in the believers. And we see that Satan will use any means at all, really, to distract us from the main purpose of the gospel, which brings us to Christ. And he'll use any force, any influence in our life to try to drag us away from our pure devotion to Christ. But the question we're going to be asking as we go through our study is this. How can we... As born-again Christians living now in 2022, how can we live as devoted to Christ and purity for Christ while living in a culture that is very diverse, very anti-Christ with all the distractions, all the enticements that seek to draw us away from the truth of Christ? Now, the lessons that we're going to be dealing with here in Corinthians are, is going to confront us. It's going to give us a lot of questions. Even about our own walk, there's going to be a lot of self-reflection, even looking at our own motives of our walk. Now, listen, the culture that I grew up in was really mixed up. At least that was back in the 60s and 70s. It was a really crazy time in our country. But when I think about what our grandchildren are going through today, they're in a culture that is really, really screwed up. I mean, this is, this is crazy. We're living in a godless world that I think has just gone completely mad. And as I, as I look at it, in fact, every time I watch the news, I, I just have to shake my head, really, really, is this really where we are today? I mean, 2007 was the last time I taught through 1 Corinthians. I was found it really interesting to go back and see this, and I thought things were messed up back then. You know, and I think you know, that was before the legalization of homosexual marriage. That was before legalization of recreational marijuana. That was before the decriminalization decriminalization of possession of hard drugs like heroin and meth. And they were saying at that time, you know, this is before they were actually saying there's more than two genders. Is that time there was, you know, we hadn't yet had the alphabet of sexual identities. And Disney had not yet gone woke. You haven't, in fact, there was no woke back then. Those were the days. They were good days. <laughs> now, sadly, people, even Christians, over time, we become conditioned to it. We get, kind of get in it. Even in the church, like the frog that's slowly in the slow boiling kettle, we've become more and more desensitized, I think, to the evil influences around us that come upon us that really end up affecting our behavior and even the way we think. And I think sometimes we're really not even aware of the subtlety of it, how carnality just kind of seeps its way into our heart and severely weakens our spirit how it just brings us to a place. Now, the country that we're living in right now is, is a melting pot of every kind of people and culture in the world. You know, we are coexisting now with every kind of religion and philosophy in the world. Our schools, our universities, we know this, the media, they're all preaching and teaching really and synchronized rhythm, the doctrine of humanism, the belief that the chief end of man is to glorify man. And to see man come to his greatness, his greatest heights. For me, what I'm watching in the world right now, I see the world building its own Tower of Babel. Like, we won't have God rule over us. We'll do this all ourselves. Thank you. And you can see where it's headed. But the message of the world is that we ought to indulge ourselves with our own passions, our own desires and pleasures. That the most important thing that we can do for ourselves is to find whatever it is that's going to make us happy. Even if that's at the expense of someone else's happiness. 
It doesn't matter. It's just all about me. We see moms and dads, you know, they'll abandon their children, their families for the sake of their own pleasure. We kind of live by that motto of Nike, you know, just do it. You know, if it feels good, just do it. And we're being, you know, saturated with all kinds of doctrines of relativism. The belief that says, in effect, you know, there really is no real truth. It's all relative. There's no absolutes. There's no right and wrong. And truth is merely only what you perceive it to be. And so, again, the question is, how do we as Christians live our lives devoted to Christ in pursuit of a growing walk with Christ while living in a culture such as this without allowing the culture to affect our spirit? Now, we're watching people today, they're worshiping idols. They're still worshiping idols. They might not be worshiping the stars up in heaven, but now they're worshiping TV stars. Now they're worshiping celebrities and musicians, politicians, and their people are, are worshiping the, the, their, the, uh, the goddess of, of philosophy and the gods of materialism, pleasure. They're worshiping their cars and their houses and their toys. And they're still worshiping the gods of goddesses of sex and sexual pleasure. And we know the show American Idol that really says it all. I mean, where the dream is that you can be an idol where people can actually come to worship you. What a great dream that is, to be worshiped. You know, for the sake of expedience, women will abort their babies. Now, all the way up until the day of birth, condoms will be passed out in school. Schools are teaching their children, encouraging them to find their own sexual identity, even in, in elementary school. And they try to say, well, yeah, but it's a new, reality, a new morality, and I wonder, how's that working out for you? If you look at it, why are people still suffering such guilt and such shame? And they're trying to wipe out guilt and shame by just conditioning you to this, but they're still suffering it. And why are so many people finding themselves deeply depressed? Why are they finding themselves addicted to drugs, alcohol, and every other kind of thing that can kind of just really anesthetize them to the reality of what's really going on? Now, we are living in a culture right now that preaches and teaches tolerance. Where in the name of tolerance, any way of life, be it ever so perverted or corrupt, is celebrated and it is esteemed. The only thing this culture won't tolerate is anyone who they think doesn't tolerate them. So that's kind of where we are in our culture. Again, how do we as Christians, how are we going to live a life that is pure, a life that is devoted to Christ, a life that calls us to die to ourselves? And just coming without being affected by the corruption of the world around us. And that's a big question. I don't think any of us really understand really how much of the world's thinking can get into our minds. You wonder, can we really be salt? Can we really be light? The way God has intended us, can we really live for Christ in a sick culture without allowing the sickness to affect, infect our own lives? Now, unfortunately, or fortunately is... We know as you look back in time, you realize that we are not walking in uncharted waters and travels. No, there's been others who have gone through this before us. And that brings us here to the book of 1 Corinthians. 2,000 years ago, the, the Apostle Paul brought the message of the gospel to this culture that was much like our own, to a city in Greece called Corinth. And there he established the church of Jesus Christ. Thus in our hands we have 1 Corinthians, the first letter written by Paul to the church at Corinth, where he is addressing really the issues of the church because the church, as we will go through the book, you see, has lost its way. They had found themselves caught up in the tide of pagan influences. 
And it seems that the world was having a greater effect upon them than they were having upon the world. So in this letter, the Apostle Paul deals with a lot of the same issues that I think that you and I are still being confronted with in our day, in our culture. Now, as we go through our study, there's a lot of questions that you're going to ask yourself about your own walk. Things like this, you know, are we first Americans who are also Christians? Or are we first Christians who are also Americans? Which comes first? Is our loyalty first to the country or is it to God? Is our worldview a worldview of the culture around us? Or do we possess a biblical worldview that we hold on that is given to us in Scripture? And what measure stick do we use to assess our own faith and our own growth? Do we measure it by what we see of others around us? Or are we measuring it by what we see in the Word of God? You know, our, how much of our thinking is or isn't really Christian at all? How many of our thoughts are really just thoughts of our culture? We've kind of been indoctrinated with things and we've learned to accept things just because they've paraded it for us. We see it all the time in television. You wonder, so how is my thinking? Is my thinking straight? Am I thinking like a spiritual person or am I thinking like a carnal person? You know, are we really carnal Christians or with fleshly minds? And how has the gospel really made a difference in my life? And how has my life made a difference in the world around me? Now, these are a lot of the questions that we're going to be ending up really asking ourselves as we go through our study in this book. And so we come now here to really the beginning at the church at Corinth. Now, we want to begin by just going back to say what had happened and what brought them to this place. We know that Jesus, before he ascended up into heaven, that he called his disciples together and then he gave them what is called the Great Commission. That's given to us in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, and Jesus came up, he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus commissioned his disciples before he ascended. He says, I want you to take this gospel and I want you to bring it and send it to all the world, not just in Jerusalem or not just in Samaria, but to all the world, I want you to bring this gospel. Now, as you go through the book of Acts, you really read the story how the apostles obeyed the Lord, how after they were filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized in the Spirit in chapter two, they began to go out with great power and began to spread the word of God through Jerusalem and then to Judea, to Samaria in chapter eight, and in chapter 9, we come to this wonderful account of this radical conversion of a, of a Pharisaic Jew by the name of Saul, who later becomes known as Paul, who becomes a key figure in the spread of the gospel throughout the known world at that time. In Acts chapter 10, you witness the first reception of the gospel among Gentiles, where the Holy Spirit is poured out among them. By Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas is headed out on their first missionary journey into Gentile territory, bringing the good news to godless places, places that had never heard the gospel before. From Antioch, they traveled up into Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and there they shared the gospel in many of the regions there. There were many who were converted, many disciples were made, there were baptisms and churches were planted. 
And by Acts 15, Barnabas and Paul returned back from back to Jerusalem and they testified before all the apostles of all the great things that God was doing among the Gentiles. How even the Gentiles were coming to receive the message of Jesus Christ and they were at root, you know, they're coming to faith in Christ. And so later on in chapter 15, Paul and Silas are again sent out into the known territory in their second missionary journey. They first traveled back to the very places they first went to, the established churches. And from there, they expanded their outreach further through Macedonia, down through Philippi, through Thessalonica, to Berea, and finally down to the region of Achaia, which is Greece, to Athens, and then to Corinth. And when Paul finally reached Corinth, he planted a church there. And he stayed in Corinth, actually, for the next year and a half, along with a couple of people named Priscilla and Aquila, who were also fellow tent makers. And there they labored for that year and a half, really making disciples. After getting the church at Corinth established and grounded, eventually, Paul left them. He went back to Antioch, where again he gave a report as to all that the Lord was doing among the Gentiles. And after some time, they send him out again on a third missionary journey. And he finds himself down in Ephesus, is on the southwestern coast of Asia, across the Aegean Sea from Corinth, where Paul had really, had really started his school of ministry. And while he's in Ephesus, Paul gets this letter. It's from the house of Chloe in Corinth. And she begins to explain to Paul the condition of the church. And it wasn't good news. The church was in trouble. There was a lot of problems in the church. And again, it seems like the influence of the world had gained the upper hand on the church itself. At the time of Paul's writing, the city of Corinth had become a very prominent city in the Roman Empire. Because of its strategic location, it had become the center of the Roman commerce, the Roman capital of Achaia encompassing the whole Macedonia and Greece. But Corinth was located on this four-mile stretch of land called the Isthmus, uh, which separated the north and southern part of Greece. That narrow stretch of land separated the Adriatic Sea on the west from the Aegean Sea on the east. And I'm, I know sometimes this can be kind of belaboring, look at the geology or, or ge ge uh, geography of all this. But those who were in the trade industry, really, uh, they could avoid risky sailing and lengthy miles and commute that short little four-mile four stretch of land where Corinth is located. So from north to south, from east to west, Corinth became a main thoroughfare. People from all over the world would pass their way through Corinth. It was a major city port. You could equate it maybe today with what would be New York or maybe San Francisco. But as a result, it became a very diverse, pluralistic society. It was the center of commerce that represented every way of life. It was known for its wealth. It was known for its luxury, for its lavish living, immoral living, drunkenness, lasciviousness. I mean, this is a party city. This is a city where if you want to do it, you can find somebody who's going to do it with you. It's just, you know, whatever your bent is, you're going to find somebody to do it. It's a place designed for pleasure, a place designed for fleshly indulgence. You could call it Vanity Fair, if you've read The Pilgrim's Progress. It is a center of carnality. This is where every fleshly instinct is kind of developed. 
So much so that eventually the name Corinthian becomes synonymous with someone who is living loose. So if somebody is known to be wild, if they're reckless, if they're careless in their lifestyle, they would say, you're being rather Corinthian. You know, you're being rather crazy. It was a center for the arts. There were theaters, there were plays, there were multitudes of religions and pagan deities that were worshiped. You know, idolatry flourished. There were more than a dozen pagan temples employing multitudes of prostitutes. On the hillside of the city of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of, of sexual love and pleasure, which employed a thousand women who were there to fulfill the worshiper's uh, sexual desires. The people in Greek fashion were mythological. They were generally polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Uh, they were a pluralistic society, refrained from moral absolutes. It was a center of philosophical debate from all over around the world. The educated, the learned would come to Corinth and to Athens, and there they would debate a wide spectrum of known philosophies. They loved to debate. They celebrated oratory skills. Sometimes the way you said something meant more than even what you said. In the context, and in that context, in that, that diverse culture, Paul brings the same gospel that you and I have been saved with today. That same gospel. We still share it. What's interesting when you look at the church of Corinth, unlike other places where churches were established, there seems to have been little suffering or a little persecution to the believers in Corinth. So in that environment, there's actually people there, you know, who had received the good news of the gospel. There were people who actually repented of their sin. Their lives were radically changed. God was doing a powerful work in Corinth. A light had been shining through this church, which brings us back to the motivation of Paul in writing this letter. Again, I want to say this, that Paul was on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus across the Aegean Sea. And there he receives the report of what's happening to the church in Corinth. And it wasn't good. The bottom line, the church at Corinth is in a lot of trouble. Things weren't right. The church in Corinth had lost its way. It was no longer growing in its faith. They were digressing under the influence of the world. They had become carnal in their thinking. They had begun to think and rationalize in ways that were not spiritual, but rather very fleshly. The influence of the culture, again, is having a greater effect upon the church than the church is having upon the culture. And any time, people, the world has a greater influence on you than you have in the world, you are in trouble. It doesn't matter, you're in trouble. It appears that the church at this point is now swimming with the tide and not against it. The church had lost its focus. The people were living on a very low spiritual plane. It seems that they had forgotten their true identity in Christ. It seems that they had lost touch with the head being Christ. They were not living as spiritual people, but carnal. They were fleshly, they were worldly. They were immature, like spiritual babies sucking on milk, refusing to eat the meat. And this carnal, worldly, immature mind leads to carnal, worldly, immature living. And they were abusing the grace of God that they had once known and were trying to walk between two worlds, one that is spiritual 
and one which is carnal. And they really thought that they could play it both ways. But can I say this? There is no one more miserable in all the world than a half-hearted Christian. There is no one more miserable in all the world than a half-hearted Christian who has one foot in the world. He got too much Jesus in you to enjoy the world. You got too much of the world in you to enjoy Jesus. And you're schizophrenic. You're torn apart, miserable. And there may be some people here today, maybe that's you. You don't understand it. You're just not, you're just not doing good. You're walking two ways. And the Lord wants to tell you today, he wants to let you know that it's trying for you to determine which way you're going to walk and which way you're going to be. They were abusing the grace, walking between two worlds, the symptoms of this carnal, immature mindset was huge. There were divisions in the church over petty things. Some of it was even over the people who they preferred as their leaders. They had personality cults. Who they followed became a source of their own spiritual pride. They would say, well, I'm of a Paul. And somebody would say, well, I'm of Peter. Someone would say, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Jesus. We can say, I'm of Doug, and I'm of Ryan, or I'm of whatever. But everybody's in these personalities. And it became a big deal. It's like, you know, who I'm associated with and who I follow makes me really better than you. I don't know if you guys have ever been around people like that. But at the same time, they're openly questioning the authority of the Apostle Paul, the one who had planted the church. And so the church is divided. There's, fac there's factions and cliques and carnality. Some of you have been in churches like that. You've seen it. You've been a part of it. There were members of the church who were actually suing one another in, in the civil courts, and it brought great shame upon the church. There was a great deal of immorality and sexual sin, even incest within the church. And the members were tolerating it without questioning it with, in shame. They kind of had this casual attitude towards sin. So there's a lot of spiritual pride. Kind of, I'm more spiritual than you kind of stuff. Have you guys ever met people like this? I think maybe a lot of us have been these people. Maybe we, at some point in our life. People were abusing their freedoms in Christ. They're taking advantage of others. They're taking liberties. They're without care of their, how they're exercising their own freedoms might actually cause another believer to stumble. They're lacking in love. The agape love of God is no longer the focus to them. They become the me church, a selfish church, where everything is about me and what I want, what's good for me. And through the church, and, and Corinth was blessed, and the way it began, having received great gifts in time, the people just kind of waned off course, were no longer spiritual. They were using their spiritual gifts as a source of even pride. They would say, well, I have this gift. What is your gift? I have this gift, and this is, this is me. Do you have this gift? Do you have it? Because if you don't have it, then I really think that maybe someday God will give you just what you really need. And the gifts become, these spiritual gifts become a matter of pride, of arrogance and separation. There's doctrinal pro problems in the church. Already there's her heretical doctrines that deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And all this takes place within a year and a half since Paul had left. All of it. And you got to know, when the Apostle Paul received this report, 
that his heart was broken. He was so deeply grieved. You can, you can see it as you read through the letter, his, the heaviness of his heart, that he was sick inside. They had strayed away from their pure devotion to Christ. And so he responds in writing this first letter to the Corinthians in which he lovingly but firmly confronted all these issues, seeking to lead them back and encourage them back to a right relationship, a spiritual relationship with Jesus. Now, the thing to keep in mind as you go through the book of 1 Corinthians is this. It is a letter of correction. At some times, there's actually open rebuke. The church was going in a wrong direction, and the shame that Paul is speaking the truth in love, he, he writes to them in love to say, hey, you've got to turn around. You've got to remember where you've come from and what God did for you and what he's doing in you. Now, many of the letters that we have in the New Testament are, in fact, correctional in nature. They were written to correct some of the wrongs that were going on in the church. The letter to Galatians, the letter to, of the Hebrews and of James and of 1 John. When you go into Revelation, you see Jesus' letters to the seven churches. Several of them are actually very, very confrontational. Actually, a rebuke that Jesus gives to the church, like the church at Ephesus. It says, you've lost your, your first love. You know, you've, you, you excel in doctrine. You've got everything down. You do a lot of good works. He says, but man, you've, you've lost your first love. You're no longer what you used to be. It's no longer your passion has kind of waned. Now, I'm thankful for all these books of correction myself because I've needed them. I've needed them. As I've gone through these books and taught them and read them, I realize, oh, Lord, you're dealing with me. There's something in me that you want, you want to touch and something you want to change. I thank God for the ministry of spiritual correction. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Because God loves us, he is correcting us, and he loves us too much to allow us to go down a wrong path. Are you guys glad about that? You should be thankful. And it's not always easy to hear these things and to be corrected because people, we are just as prone to these things as the church of Corinth was back then. This is describing our condition. Many of the same struggles that we're gonna see addressed in 1 Corinthians are issues we're dealing with in the church today. And I think there'll be times as we go through this letter that it's gonna to touch a nerve with you once or twice or maybe five or 10 or 50 times. And you're gonna be, sometimes you may be leaving here feeling unsettled, disturbed and convicted, but you know what? That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's his work, it's what he does because he loves us. And he knows that there's a better way. There's a better way for us to live than simply live in such a low, shallow, immature, carnal spirit uh, life. Paul is going to show us the contrast between the carnal man and the spiritual man. The one who walks according to the spirit and the one who walks according to the flesh. We'll see the contrast between the mature and the immature. We'll see the dangers of spiritual pride and how it works to kill our sensitivity to both God and to others. Paul's objective in this epistle is to get this message across to believers that God desires so much more for them than simply to forgive their sin. No, he has a beautiful, wonderful plan of relationship that he desires for all of his people. 
to come to him and worship, to walk in fellowship with God, and to be spiritual people like he has called us to be, even living in a world that's gone mad. In typical fashion, Paul begins his letter with a salutation. Verse one, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We typically sign off our letters with our identity. You know, I'll say yours truly, Doug, or thank you, Doug, or whatever it is. But they begin their letters by first saying who it's from. That might be a pretty good idea sometimes. I want to know who this is from. Before I read it, I want to know who it's from. But Paul, he's is an apostle. He's one who has been sent out. He's a messenger. That's what the word means. He has not been voted on. He has not been self-appointed. He has been commissioned as an apostle by Jesus Christ, by and according to the will of God. And if there's one thing that you know about Paul is that he was always certain in all the years of his ministry that he was an apostle by the will of God. Why? Because it was God who interfered in his life. You know, he was going in one direction on the road to Damascus, and it was Jesus himself who interfered with his plans and called him and changed his plans, changed his course. And so Paul is certain, he's confident of his own calling. He says, I'm here because this is where God put me. Not because you put me here or anybody voted on me. I'm here because he put me here. And when you have that kind of confidence, there's just, it's just a marvelous thing. You know, I'm here to do what God wants me to do rather than what you want me to do. And I think really every single pastor should have that kind of attitude. You know, we're here not to please you. Oh, I love y'all, but I'm here to please him. And, and Paul understood it as one appointed by the Lord. I know all the times over my, in, my own ministry, the times that it's because I knew I was called by God to do what I was doing that it kept me from quitting when times seemed too hard and discouraged. I thought, well, Lord, you sent me here. I guess I really can't go until you let me go. And so, Lord's been faithful in that. But the Apostle Paul, he understood it. He was there by the will of God. He's confident in his calling and the authority that's been given to him. And by the way, it's important that he establishes his authority before he writes this letter. He's writing in verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those, he says, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Having reminded them of, their own, of his own identity, he now seeks to remind them of who they really are. They are the church of God in Corinth, much like we are the church of God here in Milwaukee. But they were God's church. That word church there, ecclesia, means called out ones. It's the assembly of believers who are now called out to fellowship, in fellowship with Christ, with one another. He reminds them that they've been sanctified, that they were cleansed, they were washed, they were set apart by, by God for holy service to God, that they are saints by calling. And that's kind of strange always. I, I think, you know, how the Bible refers to us as saints because, again, I chuckle because I know you. I don't really see you as saints, but, but he does. And he sees us, you see, through the lens of Jesus. When we've been washed and we've been cleansed, he sees us through. Aren't you glad about that? That he had actually looked at you and think you're a saint. Well, you're thinking, well, there's got a lot of work to do. And there is a lot of work to do. But we don't have to wait till after we die and have somebody proclaim our sainthood 
No, the Lord's already done it because of our faith in Jesus. That he makes us. He's the one who makes us righteous in the sight of God. I find it really interesting here that every born-again Christian were called a saint. But though Paul had heard all these problems in the church, that he still refers to them as saints. And this is a problem church. They've gone out, they've gone, they're not really in a healthy place spiritually. They were acting, they're not acting very saintly, and they need to remind it who they really are. I want you to remember that you're called saints by calling. One thing that made clear is that Paul believed that all these ones he's writing to are truly believers. Some people say, man, they don't act like believers. They don't seem to be like, but no, he says, no, they were. They were sanctified. They were cleansed. He is writing to carnal Christians. These ones who are messed up, they're acting out and thinking with carnal minds, but he still believes they're part of the body of Christ. And that's good news for you and I. He still knows. They might be off. They might be in a bad place, but he has not abandoned them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, two wonderful words. The Greeks, when they would get together, they'd say, grace to you. The Hebrews, when they would get together, they shalom, means peace to you. And when they come together, you know, in Jesus, it's grace and peace. These words are married. And grace always precedes peace. The believer must first receive the grace of God before he can find the peace with God. And with peace with God leads us on to experience the peace of God. It's a really wonderful thing. But Paul says, I thank God for you always concerning you, for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, people, he's addressing who he knows are believers. He doesn't consider them as people who are lost. They're off, they, they got problems, but they're believers and they've lost their way. And so he gets to the heart of the message and he, before he addresses all the problems that he has to address, he wants to reassure them of God's love for them, of his love for them. In essence, he begins by reminding them what God had done in the past, of the grace that they had received when they first repented and first gave their lives to Christ. Back then, they all rejoiced in their salvation. Back then, they enjoyed the abundance of grace that was given to them. Back then, they were forgiven much. They were loved much. Great things were happening back then. Back then, listen, the Lord blessed them. He enriched them. He gave them every spiritual gift they could possibly need. He reminded them that, they were con that Christ was confirmed in them. Back then, he says, they eagerly waited the revelation of Christ. They were, they were excited about his coming. Back then, their love for God and for others was pure and it was holy. They had a genuine love, a genuine passion back then. Everything had back then. Back then, the Holy Spirit was thriving in the church and they were very blessed people. And the grace of God was upon them. Great miracles were happening back then. And I've said so many occasions that if all you have in your life right now is a testimony of a time back then when your life was passionate for the Lord and you were on fire for the Lord, you were in love with God and love with his people, 
If you don't still have that, you have lost your passion. You're in trouble. The Lord never wants it to be a back then. He wants it to be something that is right now. Never back looking, oh yeah, there was a time I really loved the Lord. There was a time when it was so sweet. I know we all have those memories. I think most of us do. I remember back to my first days in Christ back at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. What a sweet time. We're all on the edge of, the, of our seats. We got our Bibles open, and Pastor Chuck would come out and teach sometimes six, eight chapters a night. And we were hungry. We only said, we were just hungry back then. We were waiting for Jesus to come. We were on the edge of our seat. He's coming tonight. We were just excited. And everybody says, well, don't you kind of regret that? Never. I wish I was still sitting on the edge of my seat. And I'm getting more that way because I know he's coming. I know he's coming soon. But it should never just be a back then experience. Looking back at what it used to be. Our walk isn't defined by who we once were, but who we are and what God is doing in our life right now. Paul reminded them, you know, they had a good start. Their start was wonderful. It was wonderful back then. But as we see as we go on in the book, though they had a good start, Paul, in writing this letter to the church, he writes to a church that is backslidden in its condition. They were abusing the generous gifts of God, spiritual gifts, and using it as a source of pride. Now, it's time for them to get a look at themselves and to see where they've come. They've moved away. They have to evaluate their present condition and see now what God wants to do in their life now and the changes he wants to make now. Paul didn't just remind them of their great past. He let them know that it wasn't to be just a memory that he offered, but he offers hope for the future. He begins by saying in verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear the confidence he has? He will confirm you to the end. Though the progress report is poor and they are in bad shape spiritually, it isn't over. God has not abandoned them. God has not want, he's only wanting to restore them, to revive them, to bring them back to a place where their passion for Christ is renewed in the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's words of hope for them is based on the faithfulness of God, and I'm glad for that. God's faithful. God was faithful to them back then, and he says, I want you to know he's going to be faithful with you even now. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. You know, at some point in the church that lost its way, they had to recognize that Christ was no longer the center. They had become earthly-minded and carnal rather than spiritual, no longer seeking the mind of Christ but walking in the flesh. But ten times in these first nine verses, he mentions the name of Jesus. In all the verses... Because he knows that the church is going to be restored to life and power. 
if it seeks to grow and move on in the glorious hope of a future, Jesus must be the center of all that they are in the same way that he was back then. We must step off that throne of self and give it over to Christ where he belongs and he must become the master and us the servant. The letter of 1 Corinthians teaches a lot of things and gives lessons to the church. It will teach us that your church can have all the programs. It can have all the self-help groups available to man. It can offer the same warm fuzzies and thrills for those who come in. It has power to entertain and amuse you with a host of different things. It may be able to pack it out with lots of people, but if Jesus is not supreme, and if he isn't the center of all that you do, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Christ never wanted his church to be an amusement park. He never wanted to be a social club. No, he wants to be a church, to be a place of grace where his son Jesus is held in highest esteem and greatest glory. Because then and only then will the church ever really be the place where the Spirit of God can transform lives from what you were to being made more like him. We had a saying many years ago when we started our church that we've lived with all these years, but the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Not good. What a main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, God's really been good to us here at CCSC over the years. We've gone through our seasons of carnality, our seasons where we've needed to be disciplined by the Lord, and I've gone through my seasons. But I know this, that God's heart for us is to be just as fresh as it was the day we first came to him, only much more mature growing the grace of God. Jesus has to be center of all that we are. We have it in the lobby. Christ-centered and others-minded. May that be true. Because we're living in a world that's crazy. We're living in a world that's gone mad. But Jesus still invites us to the throne of grace to live there and have fellowship. We need to be ready to hear, ready to repent, and ready to respond with increasing faith, trusting in Christ. Let me ask you, where do you all stand today? I don't know, God knows. Some here may really need this more than others, but I can say to you this morning that if all you have to show for your walk is a time when you really walked in fellowship with Christ back then, it's time to turn around and get back where the Lord wants you to be. I wonder if you still have the same joy as you had back then. I wonder if you still have the same love that you had back then. I wonder if you still have the same passion for others as you had back then. Because if you don't, he wants to renew you and restore you because he is a faithful and merciful and loving God. If ever there's a time for the church to say, oh Lord, we repent, it's now. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. 
Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.